Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. And I am so excited today to welcome a personal hero of mine, Miss Beth Cantor. Beth has been in the nonprofit space for a long time. I don't want to embarrass her, but she's sort of the Beyonce of the nonprofit world. <laughs> and so excited to talk today with Beth about the healthy, thriving nonprofit, particularly as all of us are now online. So welcome, Beth. Rhea, thank you so much. And thank you so much for that welcome. No one's ever called me Beyonce, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, before we get started with the real questions, I just want you to speak a little bit about the importance of having a signature look because we all know you by the cowboy hat, and now you seem like maybe you've moved on to glasses instead. Tell me about that. Uh, I love that. Well, I love your glasses. Oh, thank um, you. So, well, I don't know. This was a couple years ago, but apparently I put my red hat on. I got it at a South by Southwest conference, and I just kind of, I liked it. People liked it. Somebody took a great picture of me in it, and I put it on my social media profiles, including LinkedIn, but they say, don't use a formal profile, like don't wear a hat, but I did. And apparently Conan O'Brien was doing a bit about LinkedIn. This was like 2012 or 2013. And he made fun about my whole profile. I did a whole bit about it. And um, Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, this was in 2012, 2013. All of a sudden I was, my phone was buzzing with, hey, Conan O'Brien's talking about you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And so he actually photoshopped my hat onto his profile, a bunch of funny jokes. It was a great story to talk about personal brand. And his whole thing was, I want more followers than this woman with a red hat. Follow me now on LinkedIn. So it was like my talk was like, it's not about followers. It's really about relationships. But yeah. also you had more followers than Conan. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. I think I still do. Take red, that Conan. I <laughs> Take that Conan is right. <laughs> but as a matter of fact, I'm going through a rebranding of my blog and I think it's time for me to take the hat off. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of love the hat, but I also like the glasses. So I mean, I'd love to speak with you at some other point about the importance of a personal brand and recognition. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of training on that. I connected to social media and how you think about yourself as a brand. And I've just gone through this exercise with my blog. I'm looking at logos and trying to think about like, what is it that I want to convey? What is my voice? What is my, mm -hmm. you know, what's my subject matter expertise? So it's actually a really great exercise to do with yourself, especially if you're looking at a trajectory and goals. On the topic of subject matter expertise, can you say a little bit about your career? Because we've known you in the nonprofit space as sort of a technologist. You've really done a lot around how technology supports the social sector and nonprofits. And then you came up with this new book, The Healthy, Happy Nonprofit, which seemed like a little bit of a pivot. But before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory? I've worked in the nonprofit space for the last a long time, decades. And I started in fundraising with the Boston Symphony. And then I decided I wanted more challenge. So I was general manager of the Pro Arte Chamber Orchestra. And then I went off as a consultant. I worked with so many small arts organizations. I got hired by the National Endowment for the Arts to be a small arts organization specialist. And then I had a business where I was doing research in the arts, focus groups and things. And then I discovered tech about 25 years ago. And I got a job at the New York Foundation for their online network, ArtsWire. And that was like amazing because that was like learning the tech and then turning around and teaching it to people in the nonprofit sector. And then that's how I got into blogging early on because I saw it. I thought it was amazing. And I, I, it just was so passionate. And also at the same time, I adopted my kids from Cambodia. So I had my professional blog, which was about nonprofit tech. And then I had my personal blog, which was about 
kids in Cambodia. And I connected with bloggers in Cambodia, these college students back in like 2002, 2003, when nobody was really blogging. And then they asked me if I would put their bloggers conference, but they didn't have money. So I raised money. This was like 2006. I was the first person to raise money on Twitter. Maybe it was 2007. So I did that conference. I found out about Blogger, which was blogging for women. I became an editor there. So basically my career has been about following the thing that you're passionate about, learning about it, living it, and these opportunities come to you. And so along the way, the last couple of years, I've been seeing people in our sector burn out and I had gone through it myself and kind of recovered from being healthier and happier. Walking was a big thing for me. So I, of course, wanted to write a book about it. <laughs> so that's how I've operated Been following things. Where I've tried to get paid for what I'm really passionate about. Sometimes I'm doing double duty where I'm doing things where I, I get paid and then there's these passion projects, but then they converge. Yeah, that's so inspiring. So you were an influencer before we knew what an influencer was. Yeah, <laughs> way back when. In the early days of social media, it was a small community, so you could establish relationships with some guy Kawasaki, who on my last trip to Cambodia, I used the evangelist for Canva, and we were teaching Canva, so I had asked him, can you send me some Canva t-shirts to give out Cambodia? Well, the day before I'm leaving, there's a knock on the door, and my daughter comes back, there's some one named Guy at the door, and I'm like, no. I'm like, what? And I looked in there, That's he was so Saturday morning, you know, and he dropped them off in person. Ten years ago on Twitter, when it was a small community. So that's amazing. What a great story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're gonna pivot a little bit to talk about what we're supposed to talk about, which is how to prevent burnout and mental health. I was reading in the New York Times. They published an article recently. You can either have a job or you can be a parent, but you can't be both. And I was like, I don't have small humans to raise, but for all my working parent friends, I totally feel that. So Beth, can you tell me a little bit about to the convergence in your mind between technology and this moment right now and how technology might be leading to this burnout that you're talking about? Like personally, I feel totally zoomed out. Well, in my book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, I talked about the things that cause stress. And of course, one of them is technology. And I've been dealing with this over the last maybe 25 years of working with nonprofits and adopting tech. And in the beginning, it used to be techno stress, because if you remember what computers were like even 10 years ago and how they crash all the time and people want to bang, bang, bang on their keyboards, or the internet was overwhelming, it was too much information. And so now we have what Zoom fatigue. And now because we have to rely on basically a technology mediated experience, not only for work, but also our social lives and connecting with families, it can be overwhelming. And the, the reasons for that are, there's a couple of them. The first, I think in the beginning of us who are lucky enough to work from home and not be on the front lines per se, or unemployed, that's increasing, I think, in our sector. We were panic working because we had survivor's guilt in a way. I know I did. It's like, I got to work harder because I got to prove myself. And maybe because in some organizations where the shift to remote, maybe they weren't used to that and there wasn't the trust established and people were honoring screen time versus deliverables. So there was this panic working thing that started. Email in bed for last thing at night and first thing in the morning, which is not a good thing. Okay, when we're on Zoom, there's this temptation to multitask. Did you see that story that went viral about you know, people not turning off their cameras when they're going to the bathroom because they're multitasking? And that's the haha <laughs> about it. But you can't see me, me and what I'm doing and it's easy for me to go out and check my email so that there's that multitasking multitasking is it not what's happening. It's really your brain is shifting from one activity to the other. And that shifting takes 
resources and that's what makes you tired. Then there's hyper self-awareness, especially with Zoom. We're not used to seeing myself. We're not used to talking into a mirror and yeah. like, oh my God, my hair, what is, all of that. So that causes stress. There's something called the self-complexity theory, which is we have the ability to be different in different contexts, but now mm -hmm. our context is Zoom, so that's taken away from us, and that causes negative thoughts to happen more often. There's also the fact that we're sitting more, and sitting can lead to diseases, cancer, whatever, and muscle degeneration and brain fog. And so there's all of these things that can happen that add stress because of Zoom and use, overuse of technology. What can we do about that? Because it feels like in the absence of the ability to be in person, like we do feel this need to be on Zoom all the time, or if not on Zoom, on Slack or on my email or on text. And, and I feel like personally, it's been much harder to create boundaries between work time and personal time. And so I'm wondering, if you, do you have any tips for us? Sure. I have a couple tips, both for yourself and then to bring to your team. So I want to talk a little bit about yourself. Work-life balance in a pandemic is more difficult because we've lost all the time signals. We've lost our commute. Uh, some of us may be working like I am. You can see I'm in my kitchen. So, and I have a laptop here. And so if I don't establish rituals that are boundaries, then I could always be working because when I go to the kitchen to get something to eat, I can pass my laptop. It might be Sunday morning and it's like, oh yeah, what about that proposal I need to write? So I have ritual closing rituals and starting up rituals. My starting up ritual is to go and take a walk and have my coffee, make my list, and then sort of come into work instead of roll out of bed. <laughs> I don't sleep with my iPhone anymore. It goes in another room. And I have closing down rituals where I make my list for the next day and physically put the computer away and just try to get all of my notes here, my little to-do list and all that, put that away and put artwork or something to work on that's fun on my desk. So that's what I see when I'm off duty. So it's important to establish time boundaries. Also another thing, and it's hard, is to establish your place to work, even if it's an ironing board, <laughs> but that you have like an established place to work because that's also a boundary. And you also have to create boundaries with your family. <laughs> I mean, I have like, mommy's on a webinar, don't come in here now. <laughs> A sign on the door or else self-imposed boundaries when you're working on something that requires extra focus, maybe to go into airplane mode and, or to put your status update on writing, deep writing. I think Stephen King used to say, write with the door closed, but rewrite with the door open. So for your team, I think we want to establish team rituals. One of them is rules of engagement. And I think in this, we're in really different times. This is not normal times. So we don't want to be getting into a thing where we're expecting 24-7 responses. So have rules of engagements. When are you available? When is off time? What is the expectation for a response to an email or a Slack message? I have many different Slack workspaces I'm on and I snooze my notifications because I don't want to get into that cycle of I'm going to respond to you at midnight on Saturday and that person responds back because it's, I need a boundary. So the other thing too is to think about what are some team rituals that you can create where you have the sense of camaraderie and friendship. And what happens is we just meet when we have work to do. And maybe you need to do some things that are like more social with your team. So you said something before that I thought was really interesting, which is that we are starting to value Zoom 
FaceTime over deliverables. In my experience, it's been difficult, and I think a lot of nonprofits and a lot of managers <clears throat> in general kind of manage via butts in the seats versus really being outcome results driven. So do you think Zoom and this pandemic has exacerbated that phenomenon, or do you think we're moving towards understanding that work is actually about results and not about the amount of time you're right. in the seat? Yeah, exactly. So I think I used to have a saying from 25 years ago when I ran this program from the New York Foundation for the Arts called ArtsWire, and it was bringing arts organizations and artists online. And people would come and say, oh, I want to bring my board online. This was like a massively experimental thing to do 25 years ago. And I think if I bring them online, they, my board won't be dysfunctional anymore. And I said, well, you know, if you're dysfunctional offline, you're going to be dysfunctional online. So if there's not the level of trust and if employees weren't managing up or you weren't, ma you know, managing around relationships and trust offline, <laughs> that's going to happen online. So you really need to think about like check-ins. Do you need to have intermediate check-ins? Like what are the kinds of check-ins? Like could it just be a bullet list on Google Docs on where, where your status is? Do you need to like break that down a little bit for somebody you're managing? The other thing is that check-ins don't necessarily have to be always about deliverables. Yeah, that's a piece of it, but that's also check-ins about how is it going? How's your energy? How's your motivation? Do you have everything you need to work remotely? And really developing that relationship with your employee, because that's really important to well-being. So that's a great segue, because I've obviously know a lot of executive directors who are really concerned about how they take care of their team in a remote environment. And especially early on when this all started, there was a lot of concern about how do I help my team's mental health? I think we get a lot by being in person and just sort of the camaraderie that you spoke about. So do you have any other tips for us around how we can make sure that as leaders, we're taking care of our team so that they're healthy and happy in this very challenging time? Yeah, I know a lot of leaders and nonprofits have been doing things and giving some more time off, like for Friday afternoon off or having no meeting days so people can take off if they need to take off or maybe they need to do some planning or some thinking work. One thing that we are missing, I think, in the physical space, we have the water cooler effect, which is basically the ability to pop our heads into someone's office who's not on our team and like bounce off ideas or just casual conversation that leads to more innovative ideas. And now, if, especially for larger organizations, we, we're tending probably to get more siloed. So to find ways to emulate the water cooler, whether it's on Slack and you have a watercolor channel, or you could leave a private Zoom room open that people can drop in or have establishing a norm where not having to schedule an appointment, but just, oh, let's just jump on a, call, a video call right now and, and resolve that for a few minutes. So you have that kind of informal interaction. Beth, I want to talk more broadly about the culture of nonprofit and the culture of burnout, because I think this is something I hear all the time. And frankly, I was an executive director. I'm now friends with a bunch of folks who used to be executive directors. And I think in the nonprofit sector, we sort of equate burnout with doing the job. Again, I think being in New York City, it's exacerbated because it is 24-7 culture. But can you talk a little bit about what it might look like for us to be intentional about shifting the culture of nonprofit to one that is sustainable over time? Oh, what a great question. <laughs> well, that's part of the reason why I wrote the Happy Healthy Nonprofit back in 2005 is when I started feeling like this desire to write it a book about this, um, kind of a pivot from technology. And my co-author is wonderful, Aliza Sherman. And we, we started off with doing a lot of research and focus group to find out what about this. And man, the stories about burnout gave us PSTD. 
at one point I had a focus group with some executive directors and one of them said to me, why is it that somebody has to end up in the hospital <laughs> to change their behavior? And so there is this like burnout culture where we feel it's caused by a couple of things. There's the kind of, we don't have enough, the scarcity. So we overwork to compensate for that. There's toxic work environments, and this is for people who aren't the executive director, but it's the work, 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 work at all costs. We're going to kill you for the cause. And then there's this kind of sense of duty, or what I call self-inflicted burnout. And it's a sense of duty. I have to do this. My work is so important. I'm so passionate about it. I can't stop. It's almost like an addiction. So I think we need to realize that these things are at play and we need to kind of step back. But we can't just blame ourselves in the nonprofit sector. This is part of a larger trend in the American workplace, which is just a pressure cooker. Longer hours, we're killing ourselves for a paycheck or in our case for a cause. And that leads to uh, problems, diseases, <laughs> getting sick and problems with relationships with our friends and our families. And that's why I wrote the book was to reframe this and to think about self-care and a culture of resilience as something that helps us get those results over the long term. Mm -hmm. It's not just kale smoothies and massages. It's right. really part of doing the work. And I think COVID in an odd way may have helped. The fact that people now are talking about radical empathy and instituting a culture of caring and resilience and rethinking these old norms mm -hmm. into sort of calming workplace norms. What are some tactics that folks can implement right away? Because I know you mentioned that walking has been a really important thing for you. I mean, we talked about meditation, but I'm just wondering, what are like a couple things that folks can do right now to start to implement this culture of resilience in their nonprofits? There's things you do for yourself and there's things that you can do as a team. You mentioned a couple of things that you can do start for yourself as part of your self-care plan. I like having a written plan. I like starting with a small activity that you like, whether it's walking, and to keep it tiny. B.J. Fogg wrote a book called Tiny Habits, and so I'm a big fan of that, is to start small, anchor it to an existing behavior, and then celebrate once you do it. So maybe you want to start walking, but not like I'm not going to walk for 10 miles every morning. I'm going to walk for 10 minutes. I'm going to walk around the block once and start to make that a habit. On your team, I think the best place to start is with a conversation about something that I call the five Fs that make up a culture of resilience. And those are function, feelings, friendship, forward, and fulfillment. They're all F words you can say. And to have like a function is, do we have everything we need to do the work, including fitness, food, whatever. Feelings, are people feeling appreciated? Friendship, do people generally like working with each other? forward or do we have opportunities for self-fulfillment, personal fulfillment, or professional fulfillment, growing our skills, and then fulfillment is being connected to the mission. So thinking about activities and rituals that your team can create that fall into one of the five Fs and start to practice them. I mean, one of the things I've heard lately in the fulfillment area is that with so many organizations are on like pause or hibernating is that they don't feel connected to their mission because they're not able to go in the field. So maybe doing something where they'll bring somebody in on a call to talk about how the program from the nonprofit has helped them. For feelings, doing things around recognition. I talked about the water cooler response. Things like I saw one nonprofit threw a, a virtual birthday party and they had a, a llama show up from the local zoo and they had a cake delivered to the person's house for their birthday. Playing games together in the virtual setting, doing virtual happy hours. Also, this sort of feeling appreciated, calling people out. And there's lots of things that you can do on Slack 
to give shout outs to people. So it's having a conversation about that and not picking a million things to do, but one or two things to try. And you practice incorporating these as rituals on your team. Talk to me a little bit about the roles that boards can play in ensuring a happy, healthy nonprofit. Because I know, especially for an executive director, boards can either be a tremendous help or a tremendous source of stress. And I know that there's a world where boards can maybe be a bit unreasonable in their expectations. And so I guess I'm just wondering, how do boards play a role in the happy, healthy, thriving nonprofit? Well, it's really interesting. I am on a board. I'm on the board of N10. And I think N10 is a highly functional board. It's a wonderful board. Great. Everyone gets along and there's a great collaboration with the staff. And I really think it's important that the board and the relationship with the, especially the board chair and the executive director is a really positive one, is one of partnership. And then that, that kind of sets the tone. And N10, we had to cancel our annual conference, the NTC. And it was a heartbreaking experience because it was like, it was scheduled to happen the third week of March. And then the pandemic happened March 12th. So that we, and also the conference is a big revenue piece for the organization. And so it was a board meeting where a lot of it, we were crying and it was devastating for the staff. And so the board, what the board did, we sent a huge basket of snacks, a joke bottle of tequila <laughs> to folks with, and then each of us wrote personal notes to every single staff member saying, we know this is a big problem. So it's really about developing a caring, working relationship and not having toxic relationships. <laughs> it all comes down to the relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that is how the CEO manages the relationship with the board. Now, sometimes a new CEO comes in and it's an old board and it was not the best and they have to have the longer view to be able to like hone it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That, shift it. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is so key, which is at the end of the day, it's about the strength of our relationships and sort of the fabric that knits us together. Absolutely. Megan has a question. Hi, Megan Drew. What's your question? But do you have any other tool that might be less intimidating for tech averse employees who want to emulate that water cooler, but isn't a reply all email, which might be go-to? I know that's, it's difficult. You have to be aware of power dynamics that happen in virtual settings. There's lots of different ones. And one of them is sort of a digital divide between those who are technically comfortable and those who aren't. Phone calls, <laughs> one, encourage one-on-one phone calls. In some ways, that's what I've been doing with some less tech sufficient people on my team. Just give them a call see how they're doing and kind of check-ins. We have also done things where we have buddied up people so that they could get better and less intimidated by something like Zoom, have helped them learn the kind of basics. And there's actually some really great resources like Zoom for beginners. Slack's a little bit more difficult, but, and it may be making accommodations. I know in one team I had where there was one employee who just not technically comfortable, let's say that. And so that person doesn't want to be on camera and they just log in on the phone and that's okay. We make, and when there's activities where they need to use the chat or something like that, they allow them to do it verbally or something. So you're making accommodations. So either find some, the phone everyone can use. I know email gets problematical with those reply alls because <laughs> you don't want to create a culture of that because that could lead to overwhelming messages. Go to the simplest tools and then also make accommodations. Beth, as a follow-up to that, would you recommend 
creating some standard operating procedures around certain technologies. Because I'm just thinking, and again, I know this makes me sound old, but I have a group that I'm working with that is an ed tech group. And so they default to technology most of the time, whereas sometimes like actually a quick phone call could be the most effective way to resolve a situation. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think it's helpful to have some parameters around certain technologies and when we use certain things? Yes, and that would be part of your team's rules of engagement. How will we engage with each other? I do an exercise when I'm working with uh, groups. It's called your owner's manual, and there's a set of questions. So everyone writes their own owner's manual, like how, right. what's my preference? Do I want to be scheduled for a check-in, or can you just do it impromptu? What's my favorite or best preferred channel for engagement? What am I least comfortable with? And then you have that discussion with people. Mm, very helpful. We have a question coming in from Erin. Erin, what's your question? My question is about things that are facing leaders right now who may need to close programs permanently thanks to the big virus out there. And I'm just wondering, how do we mitigate the spread of panic among other programs and staff who may or may not be impacted by this? First of all, I'm really sorry about that. And I think this is becoming more common, especially, I don't know if you've read the article in um, Chronicle or in Forbes that talked about some of the recent studies and projections on how many nonprofits they anticipate going out of business and closing I, their doors. And, Chronicle of Philanthropy, I think that's where it was. Yeah, worst case scenario was like 38%. It was something really scary. And that a baseline was something like 10 or 11. I can't remember the numbers, but I just know that the higher end of it was like, holy shit. I really feel we're a pretty big nonprofit. So we're closing individual programs, but the nonprofit itself is fine. It's been around for 47 years. It'll carry on, right. but it just won't look the same. How does that bleed into other program areas? And how, well, how can I help those folks? I think the first thing is that you have to have transparency and you have to over, almost over communicate about why it's happening and what the plan is for other potential closures, assure people that that's not going to happen. <laughs> I think we need to have grief rituals in some ways because it's like, it's like a death in a way. We need to like have some sort of ritual around this closing that allows people to have closure around it. So transparency, having that closure, and I don't know what your role is, Erin, or if you're the director, if you're... I'm the president and CEO. Okay, so then maybe also making sure that you are also having... So that people don't find out about it in a hands-on deck, everyone's Zoom call, but that people, maybe there's one-on-ones before. I know that takes more time. Maybe it's your briefing certain managers who then would brief their staff about it, but it's that part of that over-communicating and being really transparent around it. And then opening it up and having, then when you have your all-hands town hall meeting, be able to take questions and be able to respond to those transparently. Because if you don't, people fill in the blanks. <laughs> so the worst thing you can do is not communicate. It's just like with, I think, in crisis management, when a crisis happens, just think about like when something happens and Facebook stonewalls it for the first 48 hours. There's all kinds of speculation, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to follow your crisis communications rule book. Thanks so much, Beth. Beth, as a follow-up question to that, one thing that we haven't talked about is the particular challenges, not just of the pandemic, but also a lot of social unrest right now related to Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd's murder and feeling 
that as a team, like it's important for us to have these very difficult conversations and yet we're in this remote environment, which I think makes it even harder to really come together as a group. So I don't know if I have a question so much as I'm curious about your thoughts regarding what you're seeing in the field and how might we as leaders really bring people together and have hard conversations in this really important moment? That is such a great question because we're not immune to what's happening in the outside world. And we have COVID first. And then on top of this, we have a global health crisis. We have a financial crisis. We have a racial equity movement happening. We're going to have a mental health crisis. That's on the next thing on the horizon. And as leaders, we, we need to prepare to have these difficult conversations as well as providing support to people. And also making sure that to your specific question about some of the unrest that's happening, that we're not perpetuating racist behaviors by going virtual. Just one simple example, one form of microaggression that a white person might do either intentionally or unintentionally to a person of color is not give them voice at a meeting. And it's so easy to do that in a virtual setting. So we have to really go deep in ourselves and really, really work on being anti-racist because we can't just be quiet about it because if we're being quiet, we're being a racist, whether we intended to be that way or not. And it's not easy. If you're a white person and you're on this call, there's some of this behavior manifests itself because it's cultural and you have to recognize it and you have to work on it and change it. Yeah. Suzanne has a question. What's your question, Suzanne? Morning. Morning. Beth, as a leader in the field of technology, I would be interested to hear what are your go-to resources to keep abreast of technology changes and new tools? Suzanne, that's such a great question. Well, the first thing I'm going to mention because I'm a board member is N10. I don't know if you're a member of N10 or if you've gotten, taken any of the online courses. I know there's a fee to those, but there's also that participated in the online community, which is quite robust. There are, there are hundreds of people there and there's different specific kind of subgroups around different types of technology. And there's a lot of people sharing freely what tools they're using and what's the latest. And also I follow all the publications from N10. So there, for that's nonprofit tech. I also look at NetHope because I do a lot in the international development. I also look at TAG, which is the technology affinity group. That's the, uh, where the foundations and philanthropy are. So those like three are kind of like sector go-tos. I love Twitter. I've been on it since it started practically two months after it launched. And I follow a lot of the nonprofit press, but I also specifically look for, I follow the hashtag MPTech, which is nonprofit technology. And I also search on those words within that audience. On Twitter, I have tons and tons of different Twitter lists. Some I've created and some other people have created and I subscribe to. I dip into those different lists to keep up with different news. I know it might sound overwhelming, but I dip in and I dip out. I use something called TweetDeck which is Twitter's monitoring. And I can open up the list. I can scan it really quickly. I can pick out two or three articles that, oh, that's something I should pay attention to. And I make that time to educate myself. So there's this rule. You have to feed yourself first. I know it sounds selfish, but you have to make your time for learning and developing your expertise. I call it my green time. And on my calendar, I will actually block it out. So it's my reading, Writing, that's what I used my blog for, was my kind of learning channel, was to like read stuff and then write about it or just sharing links, but make time to learn. One thing that you said, Beth, I'd love to follow up on is 
you mentioned that you think that we are going to have a mental health crisis, and I totally agree with you. And um, so my question to you is, as a leader of a nonprofit, what do we do about that? Because I'm thinking about not just our staff, but obviously the clients that we serve who are often the most vulnerable. And I think in this culture, we don't really have a healthy relationship with talking about mental health. So I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts or suggestions about what we might do about that? Gosh, it's so overwhelming to even think about that. And I know it's tough all around for everybody. I always say, I feel grateful my family can work and so far we're healthy physically. And I know there's a lot of people who are worse off. So, and it's hard on everybody. So we can anticipate that we make sure we have those benefits like EAP employee assistance programs and resources available. I know larger organizations are more likely to have those in-house and have HR resources like that to be able to refer people. So that's super important. I think on the, the client side, and it kind of depends on what your nonprofit's programs are. Maybe you're already providing those types of services. And if not, maybe that's not part of your mission, but maybe you want to have a resource list. And I actually, I can share one where there's, there's a number of mental health nonprofits have put together a consortium and they have a number of resources available. So it's being educated. And it's also like being able to internally, I guess, on your team to, to make it okay. Mm. And to be able yeah. to talk about it. And I think the best thing is if you're a leader, because <laughs> leaders have a lot of power, they can normalize things. Um, yeah. Just to be able to talk about it. Yeah. That's um, such a great point because as a leader, you're unaware of the ways in which you're being perceived. And so to speak about the workaholic culture as a leader, I was like, no, 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 you guys take time off work-life balance. I'm not going to do that. I'm still going to email at 11 o'clock at night, but you guys do it. And what I didn't realize was what I said and how I acted were two very different things. Right. It's not only about what you say, it's what you do. Right. Which leads into another question. My boss does not have an off switch and works evenings and over the weekend. He is respectful of others' work hours, but his example is not healthy for the organization. As his assistant, what can I do better to help him balance his work slash life schedule? That is, wow, that's a good one. And that gets into so many things. And like, I have so many other questions about that. Like, what is your current working relationship? Are you allowed to help him put some boundaries up? <laughs> is that part of your job description? Is that part of the way that you work? Managing up a little bit, maybe. It's so different because I know I've heard of this situation before and it, you'd say, okay, if you're managing their schedule, maybe you do have control of the schedule, then you can maybe help schedule it so they're not on back-to-back -back meetings all the time. And this person said, no, 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 he just schedules himself. <laughs> so, so maybe it's having a conversation about bringing that up. I know that's hard. It might require some bravery to do that, but sort of maybe having an honest conversation about like, we're all, everyone is stressed. We're all like, I'm extraordinarily, this isn't just that we're working from home. We're working at home during a global health crisis. Yeah. Um, it's an extraordinarily different time. And what can we do to kind of mitigate some of the stress so we can see the other end of COVID. And here are some ideas as your assistant, here are some ways that I can help you take some of the pressure off. Yeah. I mean, the good yeah. thing is you may be overworking, but the ones that overwork and then also inflict that on their employees, that's a toxic situation. So it sounds like that's not the case. So it sounds like you're caring about this person that you work with and that you want to make sure that they're healthy and don't yeah. burn out. Yes. And to follow up with that, I think your boss, anonymous attendee, may not be aware, somewhat similar to how I was unaware of what the impact of my actions were. And so I think communication is probably key and a sidebar conversation like, hey, by the way, just so you know, 
<laughs> when you're sending out emails at 11 o'clock at night, the impact is actually that everyone feels pressured to respond, which is sometimes not something that with someone with the most formal authority you are aware of. And maybe you need to send the emails at 11 o'clock at night because you're also homeschooling your kids and that's your only quiet time. Like let us know about that or maybe use some of the scheduling tools <laughs> mm -hmm. so that the email goes out during normal business hours. Maria has a question coming in. What's your question? Hi. I was just wondering about friends who are overwhelmed by Zoom and video chats. I'm a consultant and right now I'm between clients and also COVID is affecting that. So I'm really affected by my friend's work and the fact that they, in five months, I haven't seen any of them. They don't want to WhatsApp, Zoom, FaceTime for any social reasons. So this is a little bit about managing up friends, but they are so burnt out from work. They don't want to do anything social. And maybe some other people have this experience. Maybe they're having it themselves on the line because I'm not working so full time. But there's other friends who will socialize with me face to face, quote unquote, virtually, who are working full time and on Zoom. So I was wondering if you have any feedback about this, about not seeing friends for like five or six months and it's starting to have a toll on me as well. I feel you, Maria. I feel the same. And I had the same situation too. I have people who we will do a Zoom call. I have a number of colleagues actually who we did walking meetings and we'll do those on FaceTime or Zoom. And the others are just like, I'm so overwhelmed. I just can't get on another video call. So with those people, I've just gotten on the phone and they've been open to just a phone call. I know it's not as good as seeing them, but it's the next best thing. Beth, I'm imagining a world where we have a renaissance of letter writing. What do you think? <laughs> I've been doing that. I am a pen person and a fountain pen person. So I have been writing letters to people, people who are friends, family, and then also well-known people. Like I wrote a, a thank you note to Dr. Falchi. <laughs> a personal note to him. I didn't get a response, but it made me feel good. I'm sure he needs all of the emotional support he can get these days. Actually, I do have a follow-up question about that, Beth, because one thing I have been hearing from folks is that they've had a really hard time getting donors or potential donors on Zoom. And I know in fundraising, so much of the work is around connecting with people. And so how would you recommend doing that, particularly since there aren't programs that potential donors can visit? Yeah, I just had the same conversation with a group of young leaders from, I think it was Candid, and it was the fundraising group. We discussed this and a couple of them had said they had a script and they were just calling their donors. This has all been recently because when the pandemic first happened, people were really overwhelmed, but now it's like, hey, we're just checking in. I just want you to know this is an update on the organization, but we just want to know how you were doing. So it was just like a check-in conversation, no asks. And they said that one person reported that 50% of those donors afterwards made a donation. So just doing a simple phone check-in, like don't email them, just call, randomly call. Yeah. Or perhaps send a lovely handwritten message. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Beth, we are coming to our end of time together. It's been such a pleasure. Any last thoughts for the audience as we sign off? Yeah, a couple. I would just say it's going to be hard on everybody. It's, I'm not going to lie to you and say, I'm fine. Everything's great. You know, I go through days where it's up and down and I think that we just need to keep positive. We're going to get to the other end of this. It's, it's not going to be easy. And we just have to keep thinking about this opportunity for positivity and reinvention. And after the difficulty that we're going to come back in a world that's going to be better, we're kinder, 
gentler, more caring about each other. And I think that in the nonprofit field, we're going to go through a period of reinvention. It's going to be better at the other end of it. I hope that that's true. But certainly, I think work will be very different coming out of this. Definitely. And I guess if, in fact, there is a world where at the most extreme end, 35% of nonprofits don't make it, do you think that there's a world where kind of the strongest survive and we become stronger as a sector? Well, but we will have a period of consolidation maybe Mm -hmm. and then growth. Great. Well, Beth, thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything. And thank you for all you do in the sector. You're such an inspiration. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This was so much fun. This is a lot of fun. Thanks to everyone and enjoy your weekend. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, healthy, and thriving. (laughs) 